This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, a show that tries to be an incubator of great ideas and a place to challenge popular wisdom. And today, we're starting a new series on border security with Chapter 1, and we're going to challenge the wisdom of the Electoral College. And you'll get all this from a guy on the street perspective. But first, hit the subscribe button, follow the show, follow me home, I don't care. And also, subscribe to my new blog at cynicalmass.blogspot.com, where I'll be covering more current affairs. All right, all right. Normally, we'd kick things off with a 2020 presidential race update of 2020, but instead, we're going to do an election day bonus episode in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be mostly a guide on what states to pay attention to, also a deep and hopefully different perspective on what a win means for each candidate. And along with that, we'll have some fun and we'll uh, do some predictions. All right, let's hop into our first segment, Electoral College. What is it? Why do we need it? And should we get rid of it is what we're covering. Now, let me start off by saying, if you were running for public office and received three million more votes than your opponent and didn't win, would you be pissed? I think you would. And that's what happened in 2016. And our current electoral process allows this. So why does the Electoral College exist? Well, let's dip into a little bit of history, and I'm going to hit this with with some uh, pretty broad strokes, so kind of bear with me. Before the founding of this country, there were a lot of types of governing bodies across the land. Their views differed on religion, economy, and culture, whether it originated from or came from the French, the Pilgrims, Puritans, aristocrats, slave owners, and so on. And they differed on how people should be governed or even if a government should exist at all. So how do you get people who are cultural opposites to sign on to the Declaration of Independence? How do you get these deeply different states to sign on to the Constitution without feeling like their way of life could be trampled on by the majority? Originally, when the rules on how to elect a president were being written, there was a debate over the popular vote versus having Congress and Congress only decide the president. The Electoral College was the compromise. Along with that, you have a Congress with two chambers, the House is based on population, and the Senate represents the states with equal say, two senators each. And all of those would be voted in by popular vote by their individual state. The way the, uh, the, way the Electoral College works, for example, California has 53 House members in one chamber of Congress, and like every state, two senators. Now add that together and you get 55 electoral votes. Wyoming the smallest population in the country, has one House member and two senators in total, so they get three electoral votes. And the candidate that reaches 270 electoral votes wins. So, how come the presidency isn't decided by popular vote like the states to make things you know, a little bit easier? Well, we'll have to answer that with a question. Why would 29 states equaling the population of California allow California to make all the decisions for them on a, on a national level. 29 states. The only reason these states would remain part of the country, part of the union, is because at least they get some say on a national level. And I don't think 48 states want New York and California making all their decisions for them. As frustrating as it is to lose an election, even with 3 million more votes, you got to put it in perspective. If you take California and New York out of the picture, Hillary would have lost by 3 million votes. Does anybody really think it would be a good idea if presidential candidates mostly based their policies on what people of New York and California wanted? Would it be a good idea to ignore the farmers, factory workers, manufacturers in the middle of the country? 
What people seem to forget is the East Coast and the West Coast, they are consuming states. And the so-called flyover states are the producing states, which creates two very different types of needs, lifestyles, cost of living, cultures, mentality, worth ethics, and, you know, so on. To do away with the current electoral process would weaken the, res the restraints holding these 50 states together. It ain't exactly at its strongest point right now. So luckily, there is a way for minority states to have a say when it comes to laws being imposed, to them, imposed on them by the federal government and the country as a whole, whether it's through electing a president or through equal representation through the Senate. I mean, people should care about minority representation, right? That being said, California is not without its edge over the smallest states. The Golden State is worth 55 electoral votes, which is slightly over 20% of the 270 votes needed to win an election. That's nothing to gloss over and add in New York, and that's one-third of the votes needed with just two states. What the Electoral College does or tries to do is force candidates to respect the economy of different states and ideally respect the culture and ideology of different parts of the country. Now, I try my best to listen to both sides of the argument and I go back and forth looking at the best of each debate. And there is one argument that people who want the popular vote or have problems with there being almost 60 senators representing the same amount of people that California has, but that, that state only has two senators. The argument is, why is it so damn important to the people in New York and California and people with that mentality that people in, let's say, Kentucky and Tennessee follow the laws that they want. Every state has their own constitution. Every state has a right not to have the federal government force laws that they don't want. Every state is supposed to be 50 laboratories of democracy. And if you don't understand that, then you are begging, looking, and asking for trouble if you haven't got it already. That being said, this is kind of a waste of time argument. In order to have the presidency decided by popular vote, you would need a constitutional amendment, and that means you need 75 senators to sign off on that. You might get some states, but I don't see most of those 29 states voting for their own demise on a national level. So the whole argument is pretty moot, and therefore this segment has been a complete waste of your time. But hey, too bad. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, that's what I thought. This next segment is the start of a new series about border security, one of the five broken pillars in our society. This goes along with government, education, healthcare, community. We are going to cover a lot, and I think this is going to be one of our most important episodes, so make sure you give it a good listen. Before we begin, you should be asking yourself through this chapter, what is border security? It may not be what you think it is. Let's dig in. This is Border Security Chapter 1. A drug story. A story begins in Colombia with over 400,000 acres of cocoa plants, the largest producer of cocaine in the world. And with 18.1 million users in the world and 6.6 .6 million in the U.S. alone, it has created a sustainable economy for that country. Farmers make about $90 a day picking cocoa plants compared to farming for, say, coffee beans, which they'll make about $30 a day. Most, if not all, farmers live in the poorest areas and conditions leaving them very little economic options to support themselves. A farmer was quoted saying, The plants give local residents a way of sustaining their families in every sense, in a way the government hasn't matched. From there, the cocoa plants move on to another group from the same poor conditions, the producers. They take the cocoa plants from the farmer, and from there they will soak, it in, uh, soak the leaves in gasoline and other chemicals, 
Then it's drained and pressed so the liquid, uh, liquid extract of the cocaine paste can be squeezed out. From there, the producers will cook up the paste, get rid of any excess water and chemicals, and there you'll have yourself a brick of pure Colombian uncut cocaine. The price for a kilo at this point, about $900. Then it's off to the next group in the cocaine industry, the smugglers. Typically, young teens will travel miles and miles through tough terrain to reach their destination. Some smugglers, they'll go to Columbia's shipping port, but most typically meet up with cartel members. This group, along with the farmers and producers, face getting caught by the police, military, gang members, other cartel members, and the punishment of getting caught by pretty much any of these groups is death for very little pay. But it's all part of the chain of suffering. The Sinanola cartel controls most of the trade route through, uh, to and through Mexico. The kilo that was $900 is now worth about $15,000 as it makes its way towards America. To control this route, it has led to death, kidnappings, bribery, gang wars, and other forms of devastation all throughout the country. To make it across the border, the cartels have quite a few different options. Tunnels, submarines, uh, they have what they call narco drones, which can carry about 30 pounds. They uh, go through regular ports of entries, you know, hiding it, hiding it in different compartments in their car. Simple handoffs at the border. And in Arizona, who learned it the hard way after sinking millions of dollars into a fence, catapult. Along the route to America, cocaine is joined by marijuana, meth from Mexico, heroin from other parts of South America, and among uh, other illegal products, which we'll get into. In America, there are about 10 different drug cartels, with about 90 areas of influence all around the United States. So once the cartels have their product in this country, they distribute to another group, the gangs of the U.S., that includes Bloods, Crips, MS-13, Aryan Brotherhoods, biker gangs, and other groups. The cartels very rarely get their hands dirty when on American soil. That's what the gangs are, are used for. And now, depending on which part of America that kilo of cocaine is at, it's now worth $26,000. Now, the cartels aren't going to give away products to gang members without providing them protection. This is where the guns come in. Some ways the cartels get their guns into America is through what's called straw purchasers. A person with a clean record will simply buy the guns and get paid to do so. Typically, women are used for this. In South America, there are sweatshops that build guns from parts that are mostly delivered from America. Another way is one-eighth of the Mexican military deserts on a yearly basis taking high-caliber weapons with them, and some may be sold or stolen to the cartel members. And another very significant way is legal sales through U.S. gun companies to Mexican military and police. Sales approved by the U.S. State Department, and at times, those guns will end up in cartel hands. In 2011, CBS reported that about 9,000 guns were purchased by the Mexican government, and they were, uh, oh, let's call it misplaced. So, to summarize, guns are at times purchased or stolen in the U.S. and brought or smuggled down from America aiding in the violence in Mexico. And if you remember what we learned in episode 3, Mexico only has one gun store on a military base. So a lot of the guns are being used to destabilize their country. Those guns originate from America. And some of the guns are smuggled along with the drugs to help aid violent gang members. So basically, the guns go where the cartels decide people need to suffer. And in this story, it goes to the gang members. So let's talk about the guns and the gangs. Yeah, and you, you might need a pen and paper for this one. According to the Center for Disease Control, CDC, 
there are roughly 34,000 gun deaths a year in the U.S. Over 60% is suicide, 3% is accidental, and the remainder, 34%, which is about 11,000, is murder. Of that 11,000, around 8,900, 80%, is from gang violence. So what does that do to a community? What happens to a community that witnesses a, say, a three-year-old girl caught up in a drive-by shooting and has her brain splattered across the wall? What does that do to, the, to her family? What does that do to the neighbors? What does that do to the police officers who have to deal with that type of violence on a regular basis? How do you help a community of people and police officers suffering from clear and present PTSD? And why is this ignored? Let's talk about economics. The fuel behind this is money. If you come from a poor or middle-class background, it's pretty easy to get people who are willing to sell Coke, for example. Because it's for one simple reason. It's easy money. Would you rather work 40 hours at McDonald's and walk away with a $350 paycheck, or would you rather make the same money in one day selling Coke that made its way all the way, all the way from Colombia to your friends? Easy decision. Let's talk about the clientele. There will always be people willing to do drugs, and it does not matter how much we improve the education or health awareness or healthcare system, the clients will always exist because every single person, including you, have an appetite for addiction. It's a personality trait. It's something you're born with. Some people, they might have, say, like a sweet tooth. Once they get their Snickers bar, they're satisfied, they're full. Their appetite is suppressed for a while. But for others... It's a candy bar, and it's a beer, and a scratch ticket, and a shot, and a cigarette, and sex, pills, Facebook, Coke, shopping, money, heroin, TV, Twitter, weed, attention. It's jamming a cell phone screen in your face. It's when you do something you like and do it in excess and have an inability to control that appetite. And we all have an appetite, some bigger than others. And as long as there is convenience, it will be nearly impossible to break this chain of suffering. It's very easy to become an alcoholic. It's easy to purchase. It's very easy to become addicted to cigarettes because it's convenience. I mean, it's, it's bought at a convenience store. And as long as there are broken communities and broken homes, there will always be a need and a want to be part of a group, part of a crew, part of a gang. There will always be sellers. There will always be buyers, both sides willing participants. So how do you solve this? How do we break this chain of suffering? Well, you've probably heard me talk about compassion, discipline, and punishment. There needs to be compassion for the farmers, producers, and small-time smugglers who live in poor conditions and don't have really any other option other than starvation. If you're listening to this at home, take a look around. How many things do you own that say, made in China? Would investing in creating companies in Latin and South America to replace those things that are made in China be a solution? We're talking about three groups of people that risk their lives for very little money. Simply put, they could be bought out, you know, with an offer of better pay and, you know, not potentially getting shot in the face. We're supposed to honor our neighbor, right? That's one solution, but this is a candle that needs to be burnt at both ends. So what is another link in the chain that we can break? How about going after the cartels in the U.S.? Eh, I'm not talking about sending the police or some federal agency. I'm talking about sending in the militias. There's more than enough of them, you know, where they got all those guns for, right? They got the muscle, and I can tell because they wear those, like, extra small shirts, you know, like the sleeve that only covers half a shoulder blade, you know what I mean? Get out there, 
commit vigilante street justice. No judge, no jury, just executioner. I don't care if this show gets violence. Go after every last one of them. Show no mercy. Or, or, we could uh, bring the troops home and have them protect the communities from the cartels. Protect us from enemies, foreign and domestic, right? Domestic? Yeah? In closing, when we're thinking about border security, it's not just about country. It's about what you let in to your community. It's about you and what you let in on your streets and in your home. What are you letting cross your borders? And do you feel secure? And that's all I have for you. We'll be uh, pulling some threads from this segment later in later episodes, so I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, share the show with everyone you've ever met in your entire life. Next episode will be the Election Guide Special. Until then, this was Solving Problems and Starting Moves. See you.